This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder from the Library of Congress. My guest today is Martin Halbert, the Dean of Libraries and Adjunct Professor at the University of North Texas. He's also the founder and president of the Meta Archive Cooperative. All right, well, Martin, thanks for talking with us today. Tell me a little bit about your, your, your background, your educational background, and your, your early career. Sure. I, um, I have an undergraduate way back when in philosophy, actually. And um, early on, I got an appreciation for um, learning a lot about a lot of different topics, because while I ultimately graduated in philosophy, I actually spent about half of my undergraduate doing chemical engineering. So uh, I have a uh, background in both the sciences, engineering, and humanities. And then I uh, decided I wanted to be a librarian and went on to library school at University of Texas at Austin. What, what year was and, that? Uh, that was, wow, going back, uh, 1986. Okay. 1986, some time ago. And, um, you know, I really, um, when I was in library school, that was uh, right at the beginning, sort of, of the uh, microcomputer revolution. And um, I also had an opportunity to work as an intern at the IBM library that's there in Austin. And that was really a, a great experience because IBM early on had, um, this was sometime before the Internet took off, and uh, they had, even at that time in the early 80s, a pretty sophisticated internal uh, network that sort of worked a lot like the Internet in a lot of ways. It was called VNet, and we were able to do mediated searches for IBM researchers all around the world, actually, that were affiliated with our site and send them the results of that search in this customized, um, these customized search formats over email. And um, we did a lot of, um, I think, pretty innovative work within IBM and the IBM technical library community in those days. While I was in library school, that was also kind of at the beginning of um, really the movement to have uh, librarians that focused on computer systems. And uh, I took all the computer classes I could because I always had this crazy idea that computers were going to be important in library work. And um, I think that's borne out um, over the years, and I, I appreciate the opportunity that I had back then to uh, get into early computing applications in libraries. Well, that explains um, a paper that, uh, that you wrote about, I think it was in 92, it was about NoBots? Yeah, and, way and, back when. And, and you had a, a kind of vision about how you'd interact with data. Can, can you talk about that for a minute, about NoBots and yeah. what you thought yeah, about Yeah, so that was a... Um, NoBots was a term. NoBot is an idea that was... Uh, of interest in those days that you might have automated um, search tools that would gather information for you. And uh, I thought that was a provocative idea. And so when uh, Lita was doing this uh, focused monograph on the future of librarianship, I did this piece um, on that idea, but with a lot of other sort of futuristic ideas about searching uh, large data spaces that in some cases have played out, in some cases haven't. You know, it, it was uh, actually looking forward to right about now, if I remember right. 
And uh, a lot of the things that were being predicted back then have come true. We have big, large screen displays. We can actually do three-dimensional renderings in real time of uh, data spaces. Um, we do have graphical browsers like Aqua Browser and um, you know other sorts of uh, systems that can render similarity of uh, data spaces and searches in graphical terms, but that really hasn't taken off to the degree that many of us thought might happen back then. But the thing that really has been, um, you know, something that is in all of our lives these days is, you know, regular access to graphical displays of uh, information in, in various kinds of web uh, interfaces. So, you know, it was an attempt to sort of look into the future and think about things, and I'm very pleased to have been a part of that LIDA special monograph. Well, let's talk about some of your other projects since then. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the IMLS, the uh, Musical Social Change. Can you tell me right. a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was a project that um, my colleague Catherine Skinner and I, who later worked on the Meta Archive project together, um, we had this early project with IMLS to investigate, you know, something we were pretty interested, a series of topics that we were pretty interested in. One was how museums and libraries could collaborate uh, in some more systematic ways, because museums and libraries, while they are sort of the scope and focus of IMLS, they are very, very different types of cultural memory institutions. And it's not clear, even to many of us, after we've worked with, you know, tried to do collaborative work between those two kinds of organizations, um, exactly if, if libraries and museums um, completely really share a lot of the same ideas of access um, to information, if they, they just have very different modalities of providing access to the cultural memory that they each administer, and we were very interested to see if there were ways that we could use some of the emerging communication protocols of the early 2000s to uh, try to bridge those kinds of cultural differences between libraries and museums. So how did that and, work? Well, what is it like? How do people interact with it? The project was aimed at uh, taking a focused subject domain. Um, the and, and this had to do with Catherine's doctoral research, actually, which was how music was used in the civil rights movement to mobilize social change and to uh, gather records, you know, citations to items, either artifacts or documents that had to do with that history of music and how it related to social change, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, sung gospels as part of protest marches or um, use of, of music in other contexts within the civil rights movement, and see if we could use, uh, for example, the Open Archives Initiative Protocol for Metadata Harvesting, or to use its long acronym name, the OAIPMH, to aggregate records and references to those sorts of materials in a single database. And it was less an effort to actually try and create a portal for that kind of material than to see if we could figure out how those kinds of institutions might be able to work together on that kind of activity and understand 
what the differences in the dynamics of the two institutions, those two types of institutions are. And we found out a lot in that. We, uh, we actually wrote up a white paper that we submitted to IMLS, and I think we'll probably at some point do that as a publication as well. But it highlighted the differences in uh, just basic assumptions about the operations that libraries and museums do. Um, libraries are are very much around, you know, they, they have an orienting focus on tools like the catalog that goes back, you know, to the, obviously to the pre-computer days. Whereas museums are much more oriented towards the basic idea of, uh, you know, curatorial displays. I mean, the physical act of a human being walking through the doors of a museum and through galleries to inspect curatorial displays as the main way that people encounter information and um, the historical record in, in museums as opposed to libraries where the assumption is that people will use finding tools like catalogs or in the case of archives, finding aids to identify things that are of interest and then go browse those individual items in a, uh, a very you know, self-directed way, whereas in a museum there's a much greater expectation that curators will be sort of steering the experience and that that's part of the central role of uh, museum staff. There's also a, a big difference in how uh, librarians and museum curators look at metadata. Um, librarians, as I mentioned, they have this focus on the catalog from long-standing practice. Museum curators look at, me, at metadata much more in the way of uh, inventory control and inventory sort of asset management, and not as a, uh, a, a tool like a catalog that's publicly available. So we, we studied that quite a bit, and you know ultimately we found that there are ways that each of those two groups can sort of meet in the middle. But one of the main conclusions of our report was that there needed to be more acknowledgement of these basic differences in orientation between libraries and museums if we were ever going to be able to better, you know, cooperate um, or do collaborative projects between those two kinds of institutions. We think that, you know, there are ways to do that, and uh, it's just not a, uh, a simple uh, process like people often assume. So the collaborative part of it, that seems to be a theme now in a lot of your projects. Yeah, absolutely. That is, I would say, um, probably the linking theme among all my projects is trying to uh, identify ways of bridging different communities, whether they are uh, technical staff communities or communities of researchers and users. Um, I just find that to be uh, really the most productive and useful kind of way to approach projects and figure out how to get people to mobilize to um, you know achieve some group effort is to figure out where there are commonalities in goals and um, desires between different groups and see where you can uh, get them to work together. Well, then tell me about the uh, Slave Voyage database. Did you did you work with any African institutions? You know that is okay. So let me give you the story on the um, the slave trade database. Mm -hmm. Um, that because it, it's a pretty remarkable story. Um, Dr. David Eltis, who is my colleague and longtime collaborator on that project, had spent probably 15 years um, actually doing a lot of the same kinds of things I was just mentioning of trying to get people to collaborate together. David is a historian and perhaps the 
foremost expert on the history, the five-century history of the transatlantic slave trade in the world. And David had this ambition back in the 80s that what would be really useful is, because at that point there had only been research on the history of the slave trade in individual ports. So you would have particular historians who studied the history of the slave trade in a particular port in Africa as a place of uh, enslavement and uh, embarkation of captives, and then ports in the New World where captives were disembarked. But there was no effort, no approach that tried to put the uh, individual pieces of the puzzle together. And David's great, his really the object of his whole career was to try to get historical researchers to do precisely that, you know, come together and share information about historical um, events in the slave trade, particularly voyages, individual voyages of slave trade vessels, as a way of amalgamating all the the, um, the very targeted research that had been going on into the slave trade in these different ports. David is a, a fabulous researcher. He really understands um, both historical methods and, and statistics very well. He is, is not a technologist. He's not a librarian. And he had this idea for the project without really having a, a clear idea of how it could be implemented. And he pitched the project of this idea of, um, you know, bringing together all these uh, historical archives of research on this topic in a unified way and putting it into a web portal. Um, He pitched this idea to the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the NEH said, it's a fabulous idea, you know, tremendous in scope and breadth. Um, It builds on work that David had been doing to that point that had primarily come about in like these early versions of a a shared body of information that they had put on a CD-ROM but couldn't be updated. Um, And it it built on all that in this way that would make the the accessibility of information about the history of the slave trade really immediate to everybody in the world. But the NEH turned him down because he did not have a a technical team. He did not have any sort of uh, an institutional and technical apparatus that could implement this vision. And so David went around uh, Emory University for a while looking for, you know, some way to to go forward with it. And at some point he was introduced to me and my digital library team, and I just immediately saw the potential of that project and the importance of the work that David was trying to accomplish. And we spent a a year-long period of really getting to know each other and um, understanding the aims of what he was trying to do and me explaining sort of what digital libraries were all about, sort of the uh, the initiatives that I had started at Emory and how they could uh, help with the realization of his vision. And we recrafted his um, proposal, submitted it to NEH, and they loved it. They uh, they actually have Voyages, the Voyages proposal that we put, uh, that we submitted to them as an example of how to write a proposal. So I think we did a good job. Well, so how many institutions um, were in, were involved with this? Did you, uh, did David, did David represent his institution, or was he an individual? Absolutely. Yeah. So David um, was able to mobilize this group of researchers from around the world, 
and we would have these meetings where we would fly people in from places as far away as New Zealand um, to uh, scholarly communication meetings um, in which in which these researchers from England and Africa, African institutions, as you mentioned, um, Brazilian institutions and others would come together and try to figure out, well, how are we going to put all this data together? How are we going to normalize it in a way that everyone can um, analyze it in a, a uniform way, um, in a way that we can all agree uh, is going to be a consistent way to study this information? And so there's roughly 140 different variables, some quantitative, some qualitative, in the database that makes up the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database that you can study the, the history of records, of primary research records, about individual voyages and the, uh, the particulars of those voyages. You can analyze that data in statistical means. There are various kinds of statistical analysis tools built into the site. You can also display them in uh, geographic information display systems so you can see where the ports are, the relative uh, proportions of uh, any particular quantitative variable that you want to display in the site on the maps. And um, it's just really a remarkable, a remarkably integrated tool for the study of the slave trade in a, a very interdisciplinary context. The site is used by historians, uh, sociologists, um, a lot of different kinds of disciplinary researchers to understand both the human consequences of the slave trade as well as the um, you know, just the very particular details of the slave trade. And, uh, you know, even while we were building that site, while it was still in beta and just sort of being constructed, people all over the world were using it in classes. And uh, that was a remarkable experience because we were getting live feedback from people that were using it as to what kinds of features they wanted in the site. And um, I think we were able to be very responsive to people's uh, to researchers' interests and needs in creating that site. And it's been tremendously well-received. It has, well, really, I think, honestly, it has revolutionized the whole field of the of historical research into the slave trade, because now, for the first time, there is a comprehensive um, picture of the five centuries of the slave trade and what it meant in terms of, of individual human beings. Um, the, the the Some of the summary data that you can display in the site was never available before. There was never a, uh, an agreed-upon consensus of the scope of the actual volume of the slave trade in different periods. That was achieved in, that, in the course of that project by, by pulling together all that data, um, bringing in the remaining major archives of information on that topic, and uh, putting it all together in a way that was you know, immediately understandable so people could finally see, you know, well, what were the actual numbers over the different decades and centuries of different um, flag carriers? What were the, what was the uh, scope of um, the loss in human life in the Middle Passage as people, as captives were brought across the Atlantic? Um, so it was, it, it's a remarkable database. I, I think I'm about as proud of that project as anything I've accomplished in my career, and, well, it, and I have enormous respect for David and his <laughs> accomplishments of, of the, uh, the team of researchers that assembled all that data over time. So I'm really pleased to have been a part of that project. Clearly, it's, it's, it's 
you know, a valuable tool, uh, and it needs to be maintained. Who, who curates that? Is that an Emory? Is Emory the curator, or who uh, who maintains it? Correct. The the data itself is maintained by a consortium of scholars, of really the recognized experts of the uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual physical you know server infrastructure is currently maintained by Emory although it may go at some point to a similar sort of consortium of universities for support. Um, I don't know if Emory will be able to maintain it in the long term, but we have created the database in such a way that it can easily be portable. It was written with only with open source tools, so uh, that's another theme of a lot of my projects is uh, I really believe in the open source approach to development of software tools. And we developed the site with uh, Java and various kinds of libraries of uh, geospatial mapping tools that were all open source, so the site can be maintained um, as a as a body of software that is uh, freely available to anybody. If anybody else wanted to create a similar site, we actually um, maintain a uh, software repository of the, of the the tools and software code that makes up the site. But yes, it, it will be something that is maintained by the, really our, our aim is for the community of scholars in the slave trade to directly own it and maintain it as an open resource um, in perpetuity. So we, we, you'll notice if you go to the site, there's no sort of membership that's required to use the site. Um, that was intentional from the beginning. David and I and all of the researchers involved in the project really believe that these historical records and this perspective into the history of the slave trade are the joint um, property of, of everybody and that we all should have access to this information openly as part of the scholarly record. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the project that you're most noted for now, which is having a, a great effect on digital preservation, and that's, that's MetaArchive. Again, probably the best example. Well, you're one of the driving forces behind MetaArchive, and, and it uh, is a wonderful example of cooperation among institutions. It, in fact, it's a cooperative. Is that, is that correct? Can you can you tell us a little bit about describe Meta Archive and how it works? Absolutely. So, um, I have a long-standing interest in preservation of digital records. My um, my wife is an archivist, and uh, early on, from the time I, I first met her, we both were discussing this issue that. You know, while there is a long-standing body of practice and um, received, you know, wisdom and knowledge about how to care for physical archives, there really was very little practice or understanding or or just you know, sort of guidelines about preserving digital information. And um, she and I did some collaborative work early on at Rice University. But, you know, I always had it in the back of my head that there needed to be a more systematic effort um, among institutions to work on these issues. And so years later, when um, there was the uh, the NDIP legislation, the National Digital Information Infrastructure and Preservation Program that Congress vested in the Library of Congress as a national program to advance our, our shared understanding of how to preserve information digitally, our shared cultural memory um, in in the growing body of information that's digital now, um, I immediately felt like this was something, uh, you know, I wanted to be a part of and I thought that I had some ideas to contribute to the debate. So when the, um, when we had heard 
in 2003 that the that there would be a solicitation later in the year. Um, I wanted to get institutions that I knew of that I might want to work with sort of prepped for that process. And I convened a meeting in Atlanta at Emory of about two dozen institutions from around the geographic southeast, because that was primarily the, the group that I knew, and brought them together to discuss, well, what sorts of things would, would be um, a likely project to bring institutions together. What I found was there was this shared uh, generalized anxiety among all those institutions about this very question of digital preservation. What were they going to do? How were they going to preserve all these digital archives that they were you know, creating rapidly at all these different institutions? Um, everyone sort of understood intuitively that the process that the the activity of digital preservation was you know somehow too big for any one institution to immediately be able to tackle there were too many tasks there were too many kinds of things that needed to be done um, and wanted to see some sort of a collaborative effort come together to mobilize institutions around some common set of goals in, in digital preservation but they weren't quite sure what to do so we had this one day meeting that was a, a really fruitful exchange of ideas between institutions uh, around different ideas of what we might do. And the simple thing that everyone could agree on that was, you know, while there are lots and lots of different tasks um, that have to be tackled in the, this broad new realm of digital preservation, the one thing that everybody agreed on would be immediately useful is if we had some kind of mechanism to back each other's stuff up you know, in a distributed way that would be immune from disasters at any one institution where we had all had instances of data loss. Um, we all wanted some mechanism to have secure digital caches of information around the country, but we didn't have the means to, you know, obviously individual institutions, and particularly libraries, don't have the means to run server rooms around the country. Now, was, Lox, was, thinking, was LOX established at that point? Locks had come along, and that was where, where I went with the idea because I had been involved in some of the Locks work with Vicki Reich. Um, Emory was a subcontractor on some of the Locks projects. And I always had it in my head that the Locks um, approach to preserving information in a distributed way that, in, in the case of the original Locks network, was aimed at electronic journal content, that that idea could be adapted to, you know, the preservation of digital archives that individual institutions were creating. So that was basically what, what came out of the meeting, and we all agreed that that was, at, at its, at, you know, base, a, a straightforward, understandable idea that we could undertake. Um, there were six institutions that came into that meeting, um, saying that they would be ready to work with each other if the uh, solicitation came out. And so we we sort of left it there. And then when the uh, the actual NDIP solicitation came out, I sort of read through it and I thought, well, okay, this is a big thing. If, um, if we can actually – one of the things that was in the uh, solicitation was a very short timeline for actually putting in a proposal – about six weeks is what I recall we had to pull it together by. And I thought, well, if this group of six institutions can pull together with this complicated application process in a short period of time, that's probably a good measure of how well we would work together collaboratively. 
And so if we can't do that, if we can't pull that proposal together quickly, it's probably an indication that we wouldn't be able to do the project. If, on the other hand, we can pull together and come up with this incredibly complicated proposal in this short period of time, that's probably a good uh, metric that we can succeed at a project like this. And I am very happy to say that that group um, pulled together right from the beginning. I've always said that I, I have enjoyed the collaboration in the Meta Archive project more than any other collaborative process I've so, ever been involved in. So talk about and talk we did about, it. Talk a little bit about Meta Archive's successes. So after uh, you, so you were doing this around 2003, you said you started working on the right. proposal in 2003. So now in 2009. Um, What's the state of the Meta Archive Cooperative? How would that stand as a model for other institutions? You know, why would they look to Meta Archive and say, "Oh, we should do that as well. We should collaborate." You know, that was our goal right from the beginning: was to show, you know, in a, a working digital, distributed digital preservation network, how it could be done in a way that could be replicated by other groups of institutions. So we, we put that application to Library of Congress in 2003. They, they funded us in 2004. And, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that of all the, uh, the NDIP project that set out in 2004, um, we very, very quickly, I mean, in that first year in 2004, we had a working digital preservation network um, that we instantiated between our, our group of six institutions. And it was because we had that strong working relationship with the LOCKS team that we could piggyback off the immense um, and sophisticated technical work that had been led there by David Rosenthal and Vicki Reich to implement a, a working digital preservation network. Now, now, we did implement a new network based on the LOCKS software. We did not uh, fork or change the, the underlying LOCKS code but we did instantiate it in a new network, and there were reasons for that that we discovered early on in the modeling phase of the project that were that was sort of uh, exciting and unprecedented when we got into it. We realized that the motivations for institutions to back things up in a digital archive arena are different from the motivations that uh, move institutions to preserve e-journal content. And when you think about it, you know, we probably should have seen this right from the get-go, but it wasn't obvious to the beginning. Um, when you think about institutions that all subscribe to the same e-journal content, it's, it's obviously in all their interest to back that, that content up because they've all paid for it. They've all subscribed to that same content. It's a different dynamic when you think about uh, digital archives. Um, Emory's digital archives, digital content we have scanned, created, encoded. Um, Emory University owns that. It's part of the archives at Emory University. It's not owned by any other institution. It's not in those other institutions' interest to back up Emory's materials, spend money on backing that up. It's not in Emory's interest to, you know, volunteer time, effort, um, equipment to backing up uh, information from Auburn University or Virginia Tech or other institutions. But so the kind of the core realization we had is that we needed a cooperative, a, a group, an alliance that would agree to back each other's stuff, and it very much is in the way of, you know, formalizing a I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of approach that, that had to be formalized or, uh, or, you know, just simply wouldn't work. Um, to make that happen, and I'm I'm very pleased to be able to say that, you know, we spent uh, about a year and a half carefully modeling 
the organizational and legal arrangements that had to be put into place between institutions that uh, to make something like the Met Archive of, of Digital Culture happen. And it has now served as a model for a number of other um, such networks. I mean, there was a, uh, a project in Arizona, the Petals Project, that you're probably familiar with, mm-hmm. um, as well as the, a, a spin-off project of Met Archive in Alabama, the Alabama Digital Preservation Network, and a couple of other new networks that are coming up soon um, that are examples of how other consortia of institutions have taken our model, they consulted with us, they brought us in as consultants to advise them on how to do it, and and then they have create they have done the same sorts of things that we have. I think Met Archive is probably the biggest such cooperative network, and we are growing um, really by leaps and bounds all the time. We've doubled in the last year, and we will likely double in size of institutions within the coming year as well. But we're very happy that we've been able to um, sort of show the way for other statewide consortia to do similar projects. And we see there's, there's just a tremendous amount of room and need for these kinds of collaborations between institutions to preserve our, our shared cultural memory. Um, so we are always very happy to uh, advise other groups in, in how we've done this, what, what it takes to run a what are now termed private locks network for particular purposes. Um, what kinds of organizational arrangements or options there are for institutions to band together to do this kind of work, and and all the other things that have gone into making that archive a success. So um, you you asked what our accomplishments have been. I think our biggest accomplishment is we we have a have been running a effective, low cost, affordable, high impact. Digital, distributed digital preservation network since 2004, and we've accumulated a lot of experience now in how to do that. Um, we also created a nonprofit organization, the Met Archive Cooperative and Met Archive Services Group, um, for precisely this purpose of um, mobilizing efforts and administering the uh, the shared infrastructure of the network. Although I'll hasten to add, there's very little central. Um, infrastructure that makes up the network. It is primarily a distributed network where both the the um, actual infrastructure, the systems, the servers, and the human activity that makes up the uh, the functions and operations of the network, it all happens at the individual member sites. So we have a very small central staff of an executive director, Catherine Skinner, um, who I mentioned before, and two technical staff that make up the uh, the central staff of the cooperative, but then there are dozens, if not hundreds, of people at all of the uh, the 14 or more institutions that currently make up Met Archive that um, you know undertake the op- actual operations of the network. You know, we we really we really wanted to see the the libraries and archives themselves sort of own that process of preserving their data and do it in a cooperative way because we uh, Catherine and I. A sort of a pet hobby horse we have is that there's so many functions in libraries that have now been outsourced to other institutions or other aspects of the scholarly communication cycle, like uh, journal um, publication that have been outsourced to big uh, corporate conglomerates that you know then sort of um, really have academia at their mercy. Um, we wanted to make sure that we were trying at least to create a an affordable option whereby institutions could preserve their own content and work together to do that rather than outsourcing that core function. Now, you've left Emory, and you're going to be um, 
at uh, UNT is the head of the UNT yes. li- uh, University of North Texas uh, Library Systems. Is that correct? That's correct. I, will, I have assumed a position as dean of libraries and associate professor there. And so when, when you do get in and once the dust settles and you uh, straighten up your desk and all, what, what, what do you expect to do at UNT? You probably have some challenges that you want to tackle right away, but do you have any, uh, given your past, do you have anything that you'd like to bring to UNT, any, any work you'd like to start there? You know? Absolutely. I, um, I, well, let me say up front, I, I will continue my association with the Meadow Archive Cooperative. I'm actually the president of the cooperative, and I'll, I'll stay in that role and work closely with all the people in the Meadow Archive for years to come. Um, I also intend to bring UN, University of North Texas in as a Mid-Archive member. And UNT is a unique institution that people don't know a lot about, actually, the, the great work they have done there around digital preservation. Um, UNT is, of course, another member of the, the NDIP suite of programs that Library of Congress have, have funded over the years. And they have operated for some years now the first digital uh, cyber cemetery, cyber cemetery which Kathy is Hartman, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Kathy and her group there were one of the big draws of UNT that got me interested in, in becoming the dean of that institution. I'm just very, very impressed with the uh, the work in, in both digital preservation and newspaper digitization efforts that Kathy and her team at UNT have, have undertaken over the years. Uh, Mark Phillips and so many of the uh, folks there are real leaders in the digital in the library community and especially in this area of digital preservation that I have been so interested in. So I am really looking forward to uh, going to an institution of that caliber, um, that, that degree of leadership in this emerging area. You know, not a lot of people have heard of the University of North Texas. It's a young institution, but a, a really growing um, and rapidly growing institution. There are more than 34,000 students there. And uh, it is one of the, the leading institutions in you know, sort of emerging areas of scholarship. Um, they had the first jazz studies program in the country, and they are a, a pioneer in these very interesting sort of interdisciplinary areas like environmental philosophy that are, are just fascinating. And they have great um, graduates of UNT, you know, people like Bill Moyers, Nora Jones, and others that um, it just was a fascinating place to me. They have a, a new president, um, Gretchen Bataille, and uh, Wendy Wilkins is their provost, and both of them are brand new, and they were really looking to um, bring lots of new energy and directions into the library building on the, the already great strengths and digital preservation work that UNT had undertaken. So I thought it was a great match, and I'm really pleased to be a part of that institution. Well, Martin, thanks very much for talking with us. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.